Support for this podcast comes from PayPal. Small business owner, PayPal QR codes are the safe and easy payment option. It's all the security PayPal is known for online, in person. Cash only, QR codes allow you to accept credit or debit with everyday low fees. No additional hardware or software needed. Use the app to generate your unique QR code. Customers scan your code with their PayPal app to pay you. Learn more at paypal.com slash us slash get QR code. This is episode number 21 with our guest, Maxwell Ivy. Here we go. Welcome to the Hidden Entrepreneur Show. My name is Josh Carey. You want in on a little secret? I was in hiding for 40 years. Yeah, I was hiding every part of myself in every situation. And I can tell you one thing. Hiding sucks. I'm now on a mission to help extraordinary people like yourself rediscover the world around you, connect beautifully with others, and excel tremendously in all you set out to do. Join in. It's The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. Hey there, welcome into the studio, the on-air button shining bright, doing its thing. We are ready to go. I am your host, Josh Carey, and you are tuned right into the Hidden Entrepreneur Show. If you ever find yourself complaining or crying out, why me, why me? Not only are any of those excuses about to end, but your desire, motivation, and inspiration to get things done are literally going to skyrocket. Here's the thing. We're about to chat with a gentleman who, get this, used to weigh over 500 pounds. He used to be scared to write articles, and he had zero confidence. Here's the thing. Today, he is known as the blind blogger. That's right. He lost his sight at the age of 12. But here's the extraordinary thing. You wouldn't know it. I've had several email correspondences back and forth, and you wouldn't know it. You read through the pages of his incredible website in awe at all of his accomplishments, and you wouldn't know it. His book is called Leading You Out of the Darkness into the Light, a blind man's inspirational guide to success. I am already inspired. Please help me welcome my guest today. It's Maxwell Ivy. How's it going, Maxwell? Hi, Josh. I'm, I'm doing really well. Um, I love the introduction, and I actually use that as an exercise with clients. I tell people that they really should write their introduction, and, and I, I even tell them, you know, come up with your theme music and think about what you would be wearing. So I love, uh, I, I, sometimes I wonder if I do these shows for the introduction and the way it makes me feel about the rest of my day. Mm. So cool. So cool. So um, I know today you're a, um, you're an inspirational and motivational personal coach. You also run a business brokering carnival rides and amusement equipment. There is so much fascination to you. I'm just like, I almost don't know where to begin. So let's begin today with 
with where you are right now in your world. You're known as the blind blogger, so obviously you blog. I've said you're a motivational personal coach. You do that. You also run that carnival um, carnival rides brokering business. Does that sort of encompass everything you do? Well, um, I've recently started uh, doing, uh, doing motivational speaking. Uh, you mentioned my first book. Uh, there's been two other books. It's Not the Cookie, It's the Bag, and The Blind Blogger's New York City Adventure, How You Can Make Your Dreams Come True, too. Um, I am about to head off to Philadelphia, New York, and Pittsburgh for, in a, to, to give some talks to people about uh, podcasting, facing fears, and going after their dreams. And I'm currently competing in a, um, in a competition with a company called Voice America that runs a national online radio network platform uh, for the right to be their next top radio host and kind of like the American Idol meets podcasting. And the winner gets 13 weeks on their network along with the use of their production and marketing staff, things that I could really, 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 really use. <laughs> Um, the, I, I, I think one of the most, most intriguing things you said was the title of one of your books. It's not the cookie. It's the bag. My goodness. I love that title. What in the world does that mean? Well, it came from a chapter in the book. That's, uh, basically the way we do things here at our house. I, I live with my younger brother and his teenage nephew and our 74 or 75 year old mom. And, uh, it's, it's hard if you're having to change your, your habits as far as what you eat and when you, uh, it's, it's hard to tell a 15, 16 year old kid that doesn't have a weight problem that there's never going to be another cookie in the house. And, you know, so what we, what we figured out was if we bought one bag of refrigerated or frozen cookie dough, brought it home, baked it up and split it four ways each got about four cookies enough so that you didn't feel like you were being deprived, but not so much that it would wreck your life. And, you know, from that, it got me to thinking, um, a lot of times there's really nothing inherently bad about any of the food we eat. The problem is the quantity, the portions. The problem is the leftovers and food that calls you, calls to you in the middle of the night from those half empty bags. You know, that's, and so that's where the whole idea for that came from. And it, it is, it is really true. It's uh, it is, if, if you can't control yourself, if you have problems with portions, if, if a bag with 60 cookies in it is a problem for you, then buy a bag with six cookies in it. Hmm. I get it. I get it. It's not the cookie. It's the bag. So, so clever. So today, clearly, your, your frame of mind has to be, I, I don't even know the word. So why don't you help me? How, how, how is your frame of mind today? Well, um, I, I tell people part of my frame of mind is just not telling myself what it is I'm going to do next or um, I mean, I have some general ideas of things I want to do, but I've found in the past whenever I was really sure what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go and was really focused on it, that I missed out on a lot of other things. And I restricted myself from many opportunities that may have been fun and exciting and maybe even rewarding. 
uh, for years, I thought I was just a carnival owner. And that was what I did. And I worked at that really hard until my, my dad's death resulted in the closing of our family carnival. And it was time to find something else that I could do. So then I was like, well, the only other thing I feel like I know is helping people sell amusement equipment. So I started doing that. In the course of doing that, I had to learn to do so many new things. I had to figure out how to create a website, which eventually meant learning to use to uh, hand code HTML, you know, recruiting clients, setting fees, recording videos, managing social media, building an email list, you know, so many things I had to learn. And every time I did something, it was like, okay, I didn't have the first clue how to do that yesterday or last week or last month. Now I do. So what's the next thing? that maybe I didn't think I was capable of, that now I feel like I am. So a lot of it um, is about what is the next opportunity or the next challenge or uh, something I say all the time is one of the best things that can happen to you is for a really good friend to double dog dare you to do something that you're scared to do. What today, what kind of help or assistance do you have or need running your business? I think that's a, a really good question uh, because one of the things I am a big believer in, as you know, is that people, especially sighted people, don't ask for help anywhere near enough. That mm. many people are struggling, they're frustrated, they're maybe even contemplating quitting because they think that they have to do it all by themselves. They've been told there's, you know, it's one of the biggest lies in the world that you not only uh, should be able to do it all by yourself, if you can't, there's something wrong with you. And so asking for help, whether that means hiring somebody to do a job, or asking a friend or a family member or soliciting help on social media, it comes, it comes down to being willing to ask for help. Now, I've, I've been really very blessed in the way I, I do things. Whenever I have had a need, I have basically told people what I needed and, and people show up. Uh, sometimes it's been people who have volunteered to do work for me for free. Sometimes they've done it for less than what they would usually charge. Sometimes they gave me installment plans when they don't usually do installment plans. The, the, the main thing was, is I was sincere about the need and I asked, I let people know it. And here's something I like to make sure I share this every time I do an interview because it's really important. It will help people understand and get past this whole block with asking for help. And what I tell people is when you refuse to ask for help, you rob the other person of the joy they would have received from helping you. Hmm. And I find that when a lot of people take it off of themselves and get ego out of the equation and think about the other person and start to think, you know, there are people out there who have spent years, maybe even decades, uh, learning a set uh, series of information, uh, you know, creating a skill, uh, practicing a talent. There are people who have lots of information and abilities out there and many of them would just love it if somebody would come along and appreciate them and say, hey, I don't know what the heck I'm doing. It's obvious to me that you really know this area. Could you please help me? And almost all the time, 
the answer will be yes, or it may be, maybe it'll be yes, but not right this second, or it might be yes, but, you know, I may have to charge you, or yes, but you may have to do something in, in return for me. But if you're willing to ask, um, good things happen. I, I actually got caught on this on the other side of this yesterday because I was, uh, I was visiting somebody's Twitter profile that has a radio show, and I said, hey, uh, when is the blind blogger going to be on your show? And the guy wrote back and he said, uh, he said, sounds interesting. Uh, what about we, what about you have me on your show as well? And I had to reply to him. I said, it's nice when people use my own words against me <laughs> because I'll, I, I'm always telling people, if you don't ask, they can't say yes. That's something my daddy taught me back a long time ago. So it's, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's, uh, it's a little aggravating, but it is kind of funny when somebody uses your own catchphrase against you. I love it. Let's go back to the beginning. I know you, you lost your sight at 12. I want to go back to even years prior to that. Um, help us see and understand as a, as a young boy, what was, what was life like as a young child growing up for, little Maxwell Ivy well in my family we had my grandfather had six kids and in our family just about everybody in the family was in the amusement industry in one, one way or another uh, for most of my growing up years we all lived on the same piece of property with, with like four or five different houses or mobile homes within you know 100 feet to 100 yards from each other and with six families, there was what a couple of dozen, a couple of dozen kids. So hmm. you know, you we you know you had you had uh, you had your cousins to play with. You had your aunts and uncles that would look out for you. And you know things were simpler back then. Back then, a game a game generally involved a ball and a stick. You know, mm-hmm. uh, or maybe some rocks, or you know maybe get. Uh, you know, maybe getting out some of the some of the equipment from the carnival and playing with it when we weren't supposed to. You know that. Uh, so, and and you know, th- times were easier as far as for parents raising kids because, as I tell people nowadays, not that I was ever really bullied except for maybe one year in, in when we when we lived for a short time in South Carolina. But for those people who were bullied, the bullying ended at when you left the schoolyard. And, you know, if you had an older brother or a younger brother, they would generally leave you alone. So, uh, you know, growing up in a big family, a kind of a closed-in family, since we were all in the same business, uh, things were pretty good. You know, sometimes they had to uh, adjust the rules of games so I could play. And uh, more than once, I got toys in my life that I couldn't play with at all. And sometimes I would get gifts that were designed more to, to help me adjust to losing my vision than they were to have fun with but you know it was I think that I think that I had uh, I think I had a pretty good growing up period Um, I know that my dad was always torn between wanting to encourage me to be uh, to be adventurous but worried about me getting hurt and I like to tell this story because it's a perfect example my brother bought a moped and got it running 
and he also had a dirt bike. Well, I had no interest in the dirt bike because it went too fast, but the moped was very slow. You know, they were basically a, uh, a gas-powered bicycle that was for people who were too lazy to pedal, in my opinion, but it made lots of noise, so it was fun. Um, my dad didn't want to tell me not to ride it, so at night he would go into our uh, garage area where they used to keep the, the tools to work on the equipment. He'd go in there and sabotage them in the middle of the night. And then it might take a day or a week for my brother to figure out what was wrong with it and get it running again. So he wasn't going to tell me not to ride it, but he was, uh, was going to fix it so I couldn't ride it. That's kind of the, an example of the, of, you know, the way he was kind of torn growing up. So it seems like you, for, for your sake, you, you lived a, a relatively normal childhood, right. big, big family and the amusement sounds, I mean, what child doesn't want to grow up around a carnival, <laughs> amusements, rides? Well, well, you, well you, yeah, well, you say that until, you, until, until, you, uh, until your, your punishment is to scrub valley claws or terrible tickets or stick candy apples or do some other oh. dis disgustingly boring uh, dirty task, you know, because uh, when when us kids would get in the way or complain about not having something to do, they would generally put us to work doing doing stuff that grownups didn't really want to do. So, mm. and as far as as far as my vision, I really need to update my bio because I have uh, retinitis pigmentosa, and I do I am, in my opinion, uh, totally blind at this point. I started losing my vision seriously uh, when I was I started losing it in the beginning when I was four and lost it gradually until I was about 12 or 13 when I had a big drop off in my vision and it stayed pretty much constant until I went to college. And then while I was in college, it went down to where, to what, to pretty much what it is that I have now, which they call it light perception. But to me, I have no functional vision. So I could, it's, it's simpler just to tell people that I'm totally blind. Uh, the, th the thing is, is since my vision was always changing, I was uh, continually having to adapt to new ways to do things. And when I was in junior high school, uh, they started me with a cane, they started teaching me mobility, they started teaching me braille, but uh, they managed to make it fun. And usually my lessons involved me getting out of class. So I, I wasn't too all upset about the whole transition from uh, not needing glasses to needing glasses to needing really big glasses to using a cane or going from regular books to large type books to using a closed circuit monitor to eventually listening to them on audio, which I find interesting. Nowadays, almost everybody prefers audio to the point that if you don't have an audio book, there are some show hosts who won't even have you on their show now, which I think is, just shows you how things have changed. I listen to an audio book every single day to and from the office. And like you said, I won't live without it. It's like the greatest in, in the world. So I, I, I appreciate you taking us through that, um, that uh, transition from, from when you said you were four and on. Tell us about this, this, um, this um, sight loss. What happened at four as far as you remember? Well, um, they, the family noticed that I was uh, running into more things and falling down more often than the other kids. So they had me, uh, they took me to an eye doctor and had me checked out. And uh, luckily we, 
lived near one of the few eye doctors in the state of Texas that even knew what retinitis pigmentosa was at that point. And, you know, with RP, what they do is they try to help you maintain the vision you have and hope for the best. At least that was the case at that time. Nowadays, what is it exactly? It's a, de it's a series of degenerative diseases that attack the retina. Okay. Now, the more they learn about it, the more they are realizing that some of them are not retinitis pigmentosa. But in general, if you have a, uh, if you're losing vision in your retina, they're probably going to classify it as some, some form of RP. And the interesting thing is nowadays, if they diagnose it at birth, there are quite a few strains of RP that they can prevent from actually uh, taking hold. There's still some other forms of RP that uh, even if they know you have them, they're, they're still going to cause vision loss. But they're, they're doing some crazy stuff in the labs nowadays with, uh, with stem cells and with uh, computer, computer chips implanted in the eyes. So, uh, you know, maybe not in, maybe not in my lifetime, or maybe not at the point in my lifetime where I would want to go through a, mm. a, a, a potentially risky therapy to get my vision back. But you know, sometime in the next five or ten years, it's uh, it's pretty promising. Although they've been saying the same thing about it for five or ten years, just like they've been saying the same thing about cancer for mm. you know a long time now. They keep they keep believing that the, you know, the gene sequencing and uh, taking the bad genes out of the body and reintroducing them back into the body is going to solve, uh, you know, cancer, RP, you know, diabetes and some of these other uh, genetic based diseases. But so far it's more of a, it's more of an art than a science so far. Mm -hmm. Can you, can you describe for us, going through your, your four, then your eight, then your 12, and then through high school and college, I know you said that it got progressively worse. What, how, can you describe that transition? What were those moments like? You know, I, I'm one of these people who is, is generally more about the how and the next thing in the future than I am about uh, about what's going on right this minute. But the one thing I remember a lot was the frustration of, okay, we were just talking about reading and audiobooks. The one thing that I remember the most, it was the frustration when I could no longer read a book for myself. And, you know, for a while that was alleviated by, by getting books in, in larger print, but there's only so many books that available in larger print and then you know eventually having to admit that you can't you know hold a book in your in your hand and turn the pages and read the book I'm one of these people I I don't think I would like the Kindle even if I could see it or even if it was accessible where you could hear it because to me a book you know you hold it in your hand you smell the paper you turn the pages uh, and so I would say that was the one thing I remember the most was the, uh, for, for somebody who started reading and read his first, you know, actual real book, Charlotte's Web at five, to no longer be able to go to the library or the bookstore and look through the, and look through the stack of books and pick out a book and then sit somewhere and read it. That was, was one of my biggest frustrations and someday, sometimes still is. 
like for example, when I when I got the first copy of my first book and held it in my hands, I'm like, this feels really good. And they say that if you look at the smile on my face when I was holding that book, it's uh, one of the best pictures I've ever taken. But part of me was like, man, really cool to sit down somewhere in the sunshine and actually read this puppy. Hmm. How did you? begin to process the inevitable? Well, I think a lot of that was because the people around me helped to process the inevitable, you know? Uh, there were people, people, you know, family, uh, teachers, uh, sometimes my brother or sometimes an incident would, you know, would make it obvious that it was time to, to realize that, okay, uh, 20, you know, legally blind, 2,200 was good, but that's no longer, that's no longer you, you know. Um, I, rem- I remember the, the one the one day when I was in the doctor, my doctor's office, and he, you know, he, he got to the point where he had used every lens he could, he could put in a pair of glasses for me, and then he's like, uh, well, I could give you these glasses, but there's no appreciable change in your vision, and there's nothing I could give you that would be, you know, so those uh, you know, there's, there's been a few times, like, uh, I would say when I was in seventh or eighth grade, I borrowed somebody's bicycle and rode it for a while. It was one of my cousin's bikes and couldn't see a, couldn't see good enough to realize that I had rode their bicycle through a, through a patch of nails and only found out about it when I gave their bike back to them and they were mad at me, you know? Uh, my brother, Michael, who's my younger brother, um, he, he, now I don't remember this happening, but it's possible it did happen. Uh, but when I was, you know, 13 or 14 years old, he remembers a time that I actually rode a bicycle over him because I did not see him in the, in the, uh, in the driveway or the grass or wherever it was he was laying at the time. And he's, he's repeated that enough times that I believe him. I think it, I think it happened. I don't remember it happening. I'm glad he wasn't hurt, seriously. But, you know, those are the kind of things when they happen, you realize that, uh, that you know, the inevitable, as you said, the inevitable is here. Do you, was, I mean, today we know how extraordinary you are and we're going we're gonna to unravel all of that, that moment where you are today leading up to that for years I started part of the introduction saying you were my goodness 500 pounds now I know you're you're at least half of that um, more than you know so um and and also um you 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 mentioned that you had zero confidence what were the perhaps natural uh, progression of the predominant emotions that you had to work through? Was there, was there anger? Was there disappointment? What did you have to work through there? Well, when the, when the family business went out of business, the first thing we did was we connected up with my uncle's carnival. So we, we took a couple of our rides and a couple of our games in our food trailer and went on his midway. Now, my uncle and his family have competed bitterly over the years with my dad and our family for for bookings to the point that you know uh mail has been open uh voicemails have been 
deleted and people have returned calls as if they work for somebody else, you know, and, mm. and more than, more than once, uh, it was suggested that my dad was dying before he passed on from lung cancer. So, I mean, it was, we competed bitterly with these people. We didn't like them. They didn't like us. So it, when, when we went out of business, it's like, come on, do we have to lose to them? Uh, is there nobody else we could work with besides them? And so, uh, for a couple of years, I tried to make that work. I was raised by my dad who never really liked being on another man's midway. Uh, didn't really care for any of these, for my uncle or for, my, for these, these particular two cousins because, uh, you know, growing up, we just never got along. The parents didn't like each other, so the kids kind of didn't. But um, I realized right away that they wanted our bookings didn't want our rides or our games over there. So they gradually took steps to where our rides were no longer able to work. So we sold them. And then the same thing with, uh, with, with all but one of my games. And then at the last, my, uh, my cousin put up a third game. Uh, I had a game where kids would win inflatable toys every time. And he had a, he had a similar game but then he put up a third one. And when, with two of them on a midway of 15 to 20 rides, it was all right. It wasn't great, but I could stay in business. But when he put up the third one, that pretty much run me out of business. So during this three years after we joined up with them, I was, uh, was trying to do the equipment selling part-time, you know, at, at night or when we weren't open. And I was uh, trying to find ways to keep my game uh, relevant where it would make money. And then eventually it got to the point where I was, we were playing the, the Texas Pecan Festival in Groves, Texas. It had beautiful weather, lots of people on the midway. Uh, my booth was stocked with, with, with uh, plenty of licensed toys and didn't make no money. So I came home, discussed it. I said, you know, if I didn't make any money this week, I'm never going to make any money. So uh, that was when I decided to start the Midway Marketplace and start uh, doing that full time. Uh, during this three-year period, though, I was—I I think I was depressed. I mean, I was never clinically diagnosed as such, but during that period of time, I was never really happy about going to work. And it wasn't about the money because when – when I worked with the Families Carnival, there was lots of times where we just barely got from one week to the next, but I always looked forward to getting out of bed and going to work. I did not look forward to getting out of bed and going to work when we were with my uncle's carnival. Um, I, put, I was never healthy. I was always overweight, but I went from somebody who was, say, 350 to 400 to somebody who was over 500. And we have a photo that my brother still hasn't given me but he says, if you look at me in that picture, it looks like I weigh more like 600. You know, um, at one point, I had gained so much weight that my sleep apnea, which I didn't know I had, had progressed to the point that I was actually uh, stopped. My breathing was actually stopping while I was asleep, and I was uh, urinating in the bed. Which is, which is actually how a lot of this all got started because I almost got thrown out of a, of a cheap motel in Port Lavaca, Texas for 
for messing up their sheets. And that forced me to go see a doctor. And the doctor said, Mr. Ivy, if you don't change the way you're living, you're not going to be around here much longer. He said, if I were you, the first thing I'd do when you get home is go see a doctor and start taking care of your health. And uh, I did go see a doctor. And the first thing she did was she said, Mr. Ivy, I think you have sleep apnea. I think you've had it for a long time. And I think it's a severe case. And the interesting thing is they, they did the sleep study. They fitted me with a CPAP machine, which, you know, pushes uh, compressed air into you while you're sleeping so that you get good rest at night. And as soon as I started using that machine and started getting better rest, I started having more passion. I started, I started thinking about what else can I do besides what I'm doing now? Because what I'm doing now is not making me happy. I'm not happy here. I don't enjoy doing this anymore. I don't want to be here. What is there I can do where I do want to be there? And so between uh, starting to get healthy and, you know, the final push from my, from my cousin, uh, forcing me out of the midway where my my one game could no longer make money. Uh, it was all a perfect storm, let's say, and I finally convinced the family. I said, look, I'm not doing anybody any good out here. Y'all are having to take money out of the food trailer in order to support the one game I do have, and there's no reason to show up and be on a midway just so you can say that I'm here. Uh, so eventually they did agree to let me come home and uh, – you know, whenever they were working in the area, they would stay here. They would have people come by or uh, they would be here during the week and they'd go work on the weekends. But, you know, it went from, you know, me working with my dad every day, us being a partnership and working our butts off to build something to being part of a midway I hated being on and being really, really unhealthy to starting something that was actually mine to the, and to the point now where if you, if you got a chance to read much of that first book, I actually thank my cousin in there because I feel like he did me a favor by forcing me out of the, out, off of his show because without that, I wouldn't have had the time and the space to get physically healthy. I wouldn't have had the time, the total time to dedicate completely to building something that's my own. And while he has more money and more stuff, I've been around him. I'm not 100% sure he's as happy as with what he's doing as I am with what I'm doing. Isn't that a magnificent turn of events that in the moment for you and him or whoever else involved, it may not have seemed like the ideal, ideal scenario, having you part. Maybe you didn't even know what was going to be next, but what you did know on some level was that, goodness, this is not serving me anymore. 100% true. Yeah. This is not making me happy. This is not moving me forward. All I'm doing here is dying slowly. Hmm. And how did you then part from that? And then what was the next transition like to where you are today? Right. Well, like I say, I had been doing some of the website stuff on the side. And this last thing from my cousin gave me the opportunity to go at it 100% and, you know, put 12, 14 hours a day into it uh, and, and really, you know, build it. And, you know, in the early days, I had to, I had to find solutions to certain things. Like uh, one of the worst problems I had was getting people to even open my emails or return my calls because it was like, 
okay, here's this young guy that nobody knows. He's never done this before. And not only does he want us to listen our equipment with him, he wants to get 10% of what we get. And all the other guys' websites, they don't charge us nothing because they have advertising. So, you know, I had a totally different business model. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's, it's what's worked for me. It's what I believe in. It's how I continue to, to run that website. Uh, but, you know, finally admitting that uh, being on that particular carnival was no longer serving me, you know, it basically freed me up to, to, like I say, just to go all in and focus on doing nothing else but uh, finding the clients and selling their equipment and and growing the, my reputation and the website. Um, from there, after I had the website, you know, I had to, uh, people were telling me I needed to get a blog. So, you know, I went through the, the same thing again about trying to figure out how to do a blog and to, to start posting uh, over there. And then every time I would do something, I would share it where I could, you know, this is, um, I started the website 11 years ago. So this is, you know, those first couple, three years, we're talking about free Facebook. We're talking about back when MySpace was still the, the dominant, if not only social media platform before Wi-Fi, you know, before, um, before email autoresponders. And a lot of it was just, okay, here is the thing I'm trying to get done. How do I do that? You know, uh, I want people to answer my emails. What can I do to make them open the emails? Or, you know, where do I, where do I find equipment that's already out there and maybe get people who are, are not being successful with the site they're using that will give me a shot as long as I don't tell them that I, that I insist on an exclusive. So I started, every time I would do something, I would either share about the result or I would be asking people for help along the way because a lot of times with a website, especially a hand-coded website, it doesn't take very much at all to break your website. And so a lot of times after I would make changes to it, I would post that page and I'd go, hey, would somebody please tell me if this looks right? Did I mess this up? Did I, did I break it? You know? Uh, and I used to have the darndest time with, uh, with adding photos to my website. Uh, half the time I would end up with, with blank space on the page where the photo was supposed to be, <laughs> but people were always so good. You know, they would go, no, Max, that, uh, you, you didn't get it this time or yeah, Max, you finally got it. That looks good. Um, but you know, so I just continued to grow the website, the blog, and every time people got, people started saying, you know, Max. The fact that you continue to show up and take on new challenges and opportunities and you do it with such joy and happiness, it, it's really inspirational to us to see what you're doing and, you know, keep it up. So eventually people said, you know, Max, you really need to share more about what it is to be a blind entrepreneur, you know, the kind of thing you go through on a daily basis and, and just share the lessons that you happen to, to come across during your, your daily life. and. You know, that's kind of easy for me because I'm one of these people who believes that there are lessons all around us if you just got your heart and your mind open to, to see them or to hear them. So I started the, the blind blogger, and a little while later, a woman came along. She said, Max, I'd like to have you in a virtual summit, but everybody in the summit needs to have something they can give away or something they can sell for less than, than face value. Uh, you ever thought about writing a book? And I'm like, no. She says, well, 
Summit's a month or and a half away. I think you could write a book by then. I'm like, yeah, sure. I don't know who you think you is, but. <laughs> and she said, Max, I want to share one of my favorite quotes with you. She said, Richard Branson likes to tell people, uh, say you can do it and then figure out how to deliver. I said, well, that's all, that's all great in concept. I said, but if I don't finish this book, uh, I'm going to tell people it's your fault. She said, okay, but I think you can do it. She sent me a resource to help me figure out how to write it. I started writing the book. She gets back to me later and says, uh, Max, the four other women think it would be better for marketing if it was all women in the summit. I said, well, that's cool. You're talking to a carny kid. You know, I grew up a promoter. I, I hope I've got blood from Barnum and Parker in my veins somewhere. So I understand about putting faces behind the screens or butts in the seats. So I was given, but I kept writing the book. I finished the book. I published the book hmm. with the help of my editor, Lorraine Regulie of wordingwell.com. And I mentioned her every time because without her, the book either wouldn't have been published or if it had, it wouldn't have been as good and it would have taken a whole lot longer. So if anybody needs an editor or just needs to meet a really cool lady with a great story, you can go over to wordingwell.com. And you can tell her I sent her or I didn't, just as long as you go there. It doesn't matter to me. Uh, very important part of my story. So one book led to three books. Uh, I'm still trying to figure out what my next book is going to be, which is one of the dangerous things about writing a book because once you write one, then there are ideas for the next book all around you, and they call to you, and it's like, Max, you need to write the next book. You need to write So... There's uh, such an there's such an inspiring point I want to highlight in what you just said. So um, in that in the beginning part of that story, you were approached by a uh, a woman behind a virtual summit, and she said, "Hey, we'd like you to be part of our virtual summit." And you're like, "Yeah, I can do that." And then she says, "Yeah, and and to do that, you need to give something away or sell something for less than face value. Do you have a book?" You're like, "No." She says, "Well, you can write a book." She was your biggest cheerleader. Get on it. I know you can do it. And you're like, "Can I?" And she gives you that Richard Branson quote. You said, "Fine, I'll do it. I'll I'll make it happen." So you go all in because as I'm learning here, everything you do is about 110% commitment. So you begin writing this book you get through it and then she comes back and says oh by the way uh my team over here we've decided it's going to be all women so thanks but no thanks and it seems like your response your reaction is everything this is the part i want to highlight you could have kicked and screamed you could have tore up the book and said oh what a waste of time what did i write this for what did i do this for but so you didn't get the chance to be in that virtual summit, but big deal. It's not about that, right? It was never about that. Looking back, it was never about the virtual summit. And you were able to envision the bigger picture. You probably felt thrilled that, my goodness, I have a book here. Am I, am I, am I in the ballpark? Yeah, yeah, you're in the ballpark. And the interesting thing is, though, is, is that after I got to that point where I'm, I'm thinking, hey, I've already written the book. Um, you know, I've done this thing, and 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 as as you as you kind of alluded to there, that could have been the whole reason she was brought into my life in the first place was mm -hmm. just was not to have me finish the book or be part of her event, but just to have me start writing it. Because you know, I was one of those kids in school that I enjoyed writing. Teachers always liked my writing. People were 
generally wanting me to write stuff. So uh, to, in, in the process of doing this, I also rediscovered my love for writing. So that was another side benefit of this. Uh, but after I'm like, yeah, you know, I've written the book anyway, and I'm, I'm happy she got me started. I'm not going to quit. Then it was, okay, but how do I publish this thing? And, you know, how to get to that next step. And um, luckily, you know, I, I knew somebody who had helped me with a blog. So she's like, yeah, she, she stepped in to help me with the thing. But when it came time to finally submit it to Amazon or to, you know, to, to send the, the finished manuscript to, to, to my editor, those same things that every author feels when they get ready to publish went through my head. It's like, uh, you know, are they going to want to read it? Are they going to think it's stupid? Uh, are people going to go, what does, what makes him think that he has a right to expect that we want to read his book? You know, so you have all those, all those, uh, those stupid gremlins that show up when you get to that point where you're actually going to put your work out in the world, you know, but luckily I was surrounded by people that I had met over the years. Uh, some great people. Most of them I've never met in person, but only online. And, uh, you know, we, we got the book out there and it's, it's, you know, has it, has it been a bestseller? No, but, uh, I've gotten enough emails and enough reviews on it from people who've read the book and who feel like, uh, they were at least partly changed by reading it. Then I'm very happy with how that book turned out, especially for something, as you say, that it was really all about just getting me started writing and getting me started sharing my story on a on a bigger level than simply a blog post. Hmm. So, so inspiring. Do you, Max, believe that everything happens for a reason? I believe most everything happens for a reason. I, I, I will admit to being skeptical with some instances along the way as to why they happen. Um, people have asked me about my blindness, for example, and I always tell them that if, uh, if that, that God must have had a reason for giving me this disease, that if he decided tomorrow that there was a reason for me to get my vision back, that would happen. Um, that the fact that I am blind and continue to do what I do, since it seems to inspire other people, it serves a purpose, even if it's very inconvenient to me. Uh, but yeah, I believe just about everything happens for a reason. And the, the really cool thing is that a lot of times when you look back, you can see all of those reasons. You see all those little things that had to come together at one particular time in order uh, for something to happen. I know your reach, your influence is, is vast. I mean, I, I've, I've, the, the list on your website of all your appearances, everywhere you're quoted, all the places you've contributed, it just scrolls on and on and on. Can you, can you pinpoint, does, does one particular story stand out of how you've seen the response from what you do come back to you? Um, one particular response. Is there a person or a story that sticks out that because of you? Um, you know, I can't think of any big stories, but, um, recently I shared online about how I was, uh, was submitting, 
a pitch to the uh, to to be a TED speaker. You know, if you're going to be a public speaker, a lot of a lot of people have launched their careers at TED's events. Um, and one of my one of the followers online wrote to me and said, Max, because you posted about the fact that you're going to do this, um, I'm now going to be doing a TED salon event in San Antonio, which a a salon event for people who don't 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 have any any experience with TEDs at all is a is an event where you show up and you work with people from the local organization to craft a speech to work on it during the day and then and then give a five minute talk at the end of the day. So here's somebody who's never given their first talk and because of of me sharing that experience, they you know they're they're going to be in San Antonio going through it and, and giving their first little five minute talk for for a TED's audience, which will be a pretty large audience between the organizers and all the people there who are also wanting to, to learn more about speaking. Absolutely amazing. Are you spiritual or religious in any ways today? Uh, I, well, I've always been, uh, been, been, been religious. I've always uh, believed because there've been too many times in my life where uh, it would would have been where I wouldn't have been able to get to the next place uh, if somebody wasn't looking after me. And so, yeah, I like to tell people I had faith before I had a church. And uh, not that anybody ever asks, but, uh, you know, I am a, I am a, a Jehovah's Witness, though, what's, what's considered an unbub, unbaptized publisher, which means, or, excuse me, I will shortly be an unbaptized publisher, which means at this point, I don't currently uh, go out in service. I don't go door to door yet, but uh, that's going to happen shortly. Uh, I believe in the Bible and I generally like to be around positive, happy people who uh, do their best. And of course, we're all going to fall short because we're all flawed human beings. As Jimmy Buffett says, we're all fruitcakes. We're all taken out of the oven too soon. Uh, but yeah, I, I like to be around people who at least try to find their answers in the Bible. And of course we can all agree or disagree over what certain parts of the Bible mean, because you know, it's a, it's a long book. There's a lot of symbolism in it. And, uh, but yeah, it's, mm -hmm. you're the first person who's ever asked me that question or hinted at asking me that question. And, um, I feel kind of good for answering it. I feel pretty good about it. So thank you. Pleasure. Pleasure. How do you how do you keep your positive attitude? What do you really attribute that to? Well, part of it is years of practice. I like to I like to believe that you can only have a positive attitude if you've been through a lot of crap during your lifetime. Uh, I love the, it. the more the more adversity you face, the better those positivity muscles, those bounce back muscles get better, get bigger and stronger every time you fall down. So um but one of the things I, I, like, I like to tell people is when it comes to being positive, a lot of it is first you're deciding that you're going to be positive. There are things in your life that are positive if you look for them. And think about this way. If you lose the remote to your TV, how do you find it? You find it because you know it's in the house somewhere. You don't know where, but you know it's there somewhere. And you keep looking until you find it. You know, if you don't find it on your own, you yell to your wife or your kids and you go, hey, who lost the remote? Where is it? Let's find it. Uh, and then if you still can't find it, you've still got options. If you have a, 
if you have a slightly older television, you can walk over to the TV and change the channels. Or you can decide that what's on TV, while it's not what I would usually watch, it looks kind of interesting. Or you can say, you know, I don't want to watch what's on this TV. I'm going to go outside in the yard for an hour. So you have to decide that the positive is there. You keep looking for it till you find it. If you can't find it, you ask for help. And then if you still can't find it, decide, well, what am I going to do? Am I going to let this ruin my day, or am I going to find some way to be happy with the time I'm fixing this man? Max, my goodness. I've always known, I mean, really what you just spelled out is the idea of always focus on the solution, not the problem. And it's to, to hear it phrased in that cohesive, incredible, extraordinary context of you lose the remote. How perfect, how universal that we can all understand and relate to that. And I love how you gave a handful of options. Okay, look, you can't immediately find the result. Try this. That doesn't work. Try this. But it's all about deciding. It's all about choice and we all have a choice in every moment of our lives how to react how to live and what meaning to give it or as i like to say you have to decide to find solutions instead of making excuses absolutely perfect what in the world is next for you max i don't know i i get this question all the time and i personally hate it because I've learned over the years that the best things that happen to me don't always happen because I made them happen or because I, I consciously made them happen. Um, I like to say, don't put limits on God because he has dreams that are bigger for you than anything you can imagine on your own. So I, I never really know right this minute, I'm going to do my best to, to win the voice of America contest and see if I can't get my own radio show in, uh, in addition to my podcast or take my podcast on the radio um, I have invitations from friends in the UK, fellow bloggers and podcasters to, to come over there and spend some time with them, which I really love, would love to do. I want to do, I'm going to do it sooner or later, but that, uh, that first trip, that, uh, that plane ticket from, from the U S to the UK, that's a doozy as, as Bugs Bunny used to say. <laughs> uh, so, you know, that, uh, I love to sing. One of these days I'm going to sing in front of a national landmark or on a major stage. I recently admitted this to an interviewer and I surprised myself. I said, you know, one day I'd love to stand on, I'd love to stand on the stage, on the Grand Ole Opry stage at the Ryman Auditorium and sing something. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't play a musical instrument. I don't write music. I don't arrange music. So it would have to be somebody else's music. But I was willing to admit that to myself recently. And it's like, Max, that sounds a little bit egotistical, but it's something I'd like to do. I'd also like to appear on Sesame Street and speak at the, and and give the and give the commencement address for my for my alma mater. Those are some things that I would like to do in my future. Who knows when, where, if they will happen. Absolutely beautiful, and I love your answer. You you immediately when I said what's next, you said I don't know, and that is obviously <laughs> obviously that's fine. That's as great of an answer as as anything. But what's also uh, wonderful is that you have a whole list of things that you would like to do. No interview I know with you would be complete without even talking about you. Of course, uh, mentioned it. You're a singer. You like to sing would you possibly give us the honors of a few bars here? Well, I'm going to tell you what I would tell anybody else who asked that question. Never ask a singer if they want to sing because the answer will never 
be no. You can drag them out of the ICU unit at any local hospital and ask them if they will sing, and they are going to try. So sure, I will be happy to do that. Let's go, Max, whenever you're ready. All righty. When life held troubled times that had me down on my knees, there's always been someone to come along and comfort me. A kind word from a stranger, just to lend a helping hand. A phone call from a friend, just to say I understand. Now ain't it kind of funny at the dark end of the road? Someone lights the way with just a single ray of hope. Oh, I believe there are angels among us sent down to us from somewhere up above they come to you and me in our darkest hour to show us how to live to teach us how to give to guide us with the light of love Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you for asking me. It's been too long since somebody asked me to sing and to sing and I was actually starting to get a little a little upset about it. So thank you. No, please. Thank you. I will leave you with this final question. Maxwell Ivy, how would you, sir, like to be remembered? I'd like to be remembered as somebody who no matter what it was, was thinking about helping others before helping himself. That'll do. Wow. This has been a, um, really a, uh, I don't even know the words, but uh, I'm feeling it. And I hope, uh, I hope you out there listening uh, feel it as well. How can't you? And uh, to you, Max, thank you for, uh, for spending your time with us today. An absolute pleasure. I'm glad that we, we had this, this moment together, truly. Well, thank you. I appreciate you taking the time. I know that you, uh, like other podcasters, you put a lot of time and effort and sweat and passion into this. And without you, there wouldn't be an opportunity for somebody like me to to go on TV or radio or YouTube and, and share his story from his house as opposed to having to, to come meet everybody in person. So I really appreciate what you do. And uh, I should, I, I want, just for people who don't realize this, I do a lot of interviews it's been rare that I've done an interview with somebody who one had as much, uh, uh, much prepared and as many notes as you did judging by the paper you were wrestling before we started and who's asked, who's asked some questions that other hosts either wouldn't answer or just didn't answer or excuse me, didn't ask, excuse me. Um, I really applaud you going places that other hosts, even after I tell them that there's never been a question I didn't answer that, you know, you really worked hard to get me to cover uh, topics and to cover them more in depth and, and, and say things in, that uh, I don't recall ever sharing on other podcasts or shows before. So thank you. 
Well, thank you for noticing. It's certainly um, deliberate. That's the kind of uh, dialogue I like to bring to the show. And um, thank you for being as open and uh, honest as you were. So with that, we're going to leave that right there. And um, we're going to do this again. There's um, more episodes around the corner. If you liked today, please let us know. Let's keep that conversation going. Uh, do your best work. You know the deal. Until we meet again, ladies and gentlemen, go get them. Thanks for listening to The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. Make sure to subscribe through iTunes or Google Play so you can get notified every time we publish a new episode. And we'd love to hear your thoughts with an honest review on iTunes. Finally, follow us on your favorite social media platforms to keep the conversation going with Josh Carey and today's guest. Until next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>